Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Our passage for this morning is Philippians 3, verses 1 through 3. Again, that's Philippians 3, verses 1 through 3. Let's go ahead and begin by reading this passage together. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we are reminded here this morning of the great benefit that you've given to the church um, in the Word of God. Father, we understand that the Word is uh, what reveals to us who you are and who we are, what you've made us to be. Your Word reveals to us the uh, blessed message of salvation in Jesus Christ. In short, your Word is truth, and it's through the teaching of your Word uh, that we are able to grow in respect to salvation. And so we pray here this morning as your Word is taught, bless this body. Father, we understand that um, you've given teachers to the church, just as we've talked about and sung about here this morning, that you've given teachers to the church to feed uh, the Word to your flock. And so with that in mind, that we would pray, bless the teaching of your Word, so that the body may be built up by it, and that we may glorify you with our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the spring of 1887, Charles Spurgeon published the first of two anonymously written articles entitled The Downgrade in his magazine, The Sword and the Trowel. These two articles would end up becoming the starting point of a debate that was eventually dubbed The Downgrade Controversy. And it's from this debate that I've derived the title for our current series of messages from Philippians 3, 1 through 3, Avoiding Gospel Downgrade. This term downgrade comes from the downward slope of a hill. If you've ever traveled out west, for instance, or even down in the Ozark Mountains in Arkansas, you'll occasionally come across these signs that say something to the effect of caution, steep grade ahead. Sometimes they'll even have a picture of a semi-truck driving downhill with a percentage underneath, something like 5% or 10% or something like that. And that percentage is telling you the degree of downgrade, how steeply the hill or mountain slopes downhill. And of course, the reason why, they, the reason why they'll post these signs is because once you have something like a semi-truck rolling downhill with all the tons of material that it's hauling behind it, it can be very hard to stop. You go out to California, for instance, and as you travel north out of Los Angeles, you eventually come across a stretch of road known as the Grapevine. The Grapevine descends from the San Emigdio Mountains into California's Central Valley some 1,500 feet in the span of about five and a half miles. It's a fairly straight shot of interstate with a 6% downgrade, and as you get close to the foot of this descent at the town of Grapevine, you have this runaway truck lane. 
And this truck lane, of course, it runs uphill and it's filled with gravel. I'm sure you've all seen one of these uh, truck lanes before. And the reason these truck lanes are built onto these mountains is because once a truck gets going down a road like the grapevine, it's more than possible it won't be able to stop. There's just too much momentum. So the truck lane provides an alternative by pushing the truck uphill into some soft gravel. This is the danger of a downgrade. Once you get on it and pick up some momentum, it can be very hard to stop. And this is more or less the same kind of danger that Charles Spurgeon was trying to address in the downgrade controversy. Spurgeon recognized that certain ministers in the British Baptist Union were making several key theological compromises. They were going downhill theologically. They were descending from doctrinal truth into doctrinal error. And just like one of these road signs, the warning that he was trying to shout was that once you start making these kinds of compromises, it can be very hard to stop. The compromise might only seem minor at first, but it doesn't stop there. One compromise leads to another, and then to another, and then to another, until before you know it, you've fallen off the hill entirely. That was Spurgeon's concern, and that was where this phrase, the downgrade controversy, comes from. It was a debate that was centered around the consequences of theological compromise. Every generation faces the possibility of downgrade, and ours is no different. The question is, though, how do we avoid it? Again, part of the danger that downgrade presents is that it's so subtle. No one begins on the downgrade thinking that they will eventually deny the faith. The compromise, again, it seems very small at first, and then it spins out of control. And the problem is that once it becomes very obvious, it's carrying so much momentum that it's almost impossible to stop. In fact, I think this is a lesson that Spurgeon learned the hard way. In many respects, his, many respects, his pleas were too late. He may have been the most famous preacher on the planet at the time and probably the most influential preacher in England at that time, but even he couldn't stop the descent once it started. The Baptist Union eventually censured him for his warning cries, called him divisive, and the man who seconded the motion to adopt the document that would eventually essentially serve as his censure was his own brother, James Spurgeon. How do you stop that from happening? How do you stop the boulder from rolling downhill before it gathers momentum? Basically, how does this type of error into the, enter into the church? And what are the signs of it? How can you stop the slippage before it gains momentum? These are the questions we're addressing for now the second week in a row from Philippians 3, 1 through 3. In this passage, the Philippians are facing their own kind of compromise. They're suffering persecution for their faith, and it would seem that either they are already entertaining or Paul anticipates that they will soon entertain the option of escaping this persecution by making some key concessions to their faith. Again, as is the case with all forms of downgrade, it wouldn't seem 
as if the Philippians are really considering an outright rejection of the gospel. As I pointed out last week, this is one of Paul's most faithful churches. And the way that, the way that Paul talks to them here in chapter 3, it's evident that their love for Jesus is still quite warm. They know in whom they've believed. And they're not meaning to turn their back on him. And yet Paul still perceives they're susceptible to a Judaizing influence that's attempting to pull them away from a pure faith in Christ alone. If I had to make a guess as to what that influence is, this Judaizing influence, I would gather it's probably the very men who are likely serving as the source of the Philippians' suffering. And that would be a group of overzealous Jews who are stirring up trouble for the Philippians with the Roman authorities in Philippi. If you look here in verse 2, as Paul warns the Philippians about this influence, he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There's really nothing in that statement to indicate that these are individuals who would in any way identify themselves as Christians. As one commentator notes, this term dogs, dogs for instance, uh, it isn't just meant as an insult. You know, we, we think of a dog as kind of a lowly animal. That's not just what this means. Rather, for the Jews, it carried a distinctly religious sense. It referred to the Gentiles, those people who, being outside the covenant community, were considered ritually unclean. So Paul has a very specific meaning here. He's saying that this threat is coming from individuals who are outside the covenant. They are unclean. He likewise calls them evildoers. Again, that's very specific language. He's not just saying that they're sinners, but that they are tus kakus ergatas, workers of evil. Workers of evil. The point is that these are men who are teaching a works-based righteousness, but who in the process are actually advocating evil. Really, the, the whole statement is, is filled with irony, but, but where Paul is pointing out that these men are the exact opposite of what they claim to be. They claim to represent God's covenant community. They claim that they're advocates of righteousness. Paul says, actually, they're the exact opposite of that. They're outside the covenant, and they're promoters of evil. You add this to how Paul contrasts their beliefs with his in verse 3, where he says that he glories in Christ and puts no confidence in the flesh, and it becomes apparent that these aren't just some misguided Christians. Again, they're Jews. I would suspect the same Jews who are probably stirring up trouble for the Roman authorities, uh, for the Philippians with the Roman authorities. Listen, when you encounter that kind of opposition, it's not uncommon to begin to doubt yourself. Like these guys are probably coming in and stirring up trouble by telling the Roman authorities these Christians worship another king. And then when the authorities respond by saying, yeah, but that's how all you Jews act. And we've settled this. We know you believe that Yahweh alone is God. And we've already decided that we're going to let you worship that way. Then these opponents are answering by saying, but you don't understand. They're not Jewish. Not only are they Gentiles, but they're not even circumcised. If that's what's happening, then that changes the legal category of these Christians. They no longer enjoy the protections that they once enjoyed when they were viewed as just another Jewish sect. 
And when you're in that kind of a situation, it can make you start to rethink some things. Again, it doesn't seem as if Paul thinks that these Christians are considering an outright conversion to Judaism. And I say that because, as we'll see next week, one of the proofs he uses against this Judaizing influence is that they do not glory in Jesus Christ. So the Philippians apparently still see the lordship of Jesus as fundamental truth. A truth by which they can evaluate other truth claims. Basically, they're still willing to outright reject any truth that opposes the proclamation of Jesus as Christ. Because for them, that fact is already settled. If you're not with Jesus, then you're not with the Philippians. It's really just that simple. And these Jews, they're most definitely not with Jesus. So it's not as if Paul thinks that they're about to just outright switch teams or something like that. But still, Paul probably understands that when you're in this situation and you have this group of extremely religious people saying they're not Jewish, they're not even circumcised, when being circumcised would refute that point and allow you to blend in with those who are, which would again in turn allow you to escape persecution for your faith, then it's very tempting to think to yourself, well, now let's see. Should Christians be circumcised after all? Again, these opponents may not be Christians per se, but it's not as if they don't know their Bibles. These are guys who seem extremely zealous for the law, even as zealous as someone like Paul, or perhaps I should even say Saul, right? They're willing to go after these people. You get my point here? When someone who believes in the same scriptures you do, believes in something this strongly, and when believing the same thing would directly benefit you personally, then it's very tempting to think to yourself, you know, do they maybe have a point? I mean, I don't agree with them about Jesus, but maybe they have a point here about this circumcision thing. Maybe we should adhere to the law of Moses. Maybe Paul just got that part wrong. You know, it's not wholly unlike what you see happening today with Christians on various social issues. The pressure gets turned up by some extremely zealous opponents. And these Christians say, look, I don't agree with them about Jesus. But maybe they still have a point on this thing. And they entertain compromise. These are the types of concessions that Paul knows these Philippians will begin considering in these circumstances. And so after urging them to strive together for the gospel in chapter 2, he starts off chapter 3 by saying, verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, meaning set your hope in Christ alone. Keep your eyes fixed there. He says, to write the same things to you again is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. It's a protection for you, a safeguard for you. Basically, Paul sees the downgrade coming, and before it can get too far, he does a hard pull on the emergency brake to put a stop to the slide before it gains any momentum. He lets them know before this thought takes root that this type of thinking is incredibly dangerous. It's not a little compromise that they're considering. It's one that, if they're not careful, can take them completely outside the faith. Well, as Paul pulls on the emergency brake, he teaches us several valuable lessons about how to avoid gospel downgrade. 
The first lesson we looked at just briefly last week, and that's to watch out. Watch out. The first step in avoiding gospel downgrade is to simply be on the lookout for this kind of error. Again, downgrade is very subtle because it occurs through a number of very small compromises. This makes it very hard to catch at the outset because it seems so completely harmless at first. It's only after it's gained momentum that the error becomes obvious. And at that point, it's incredibly hard to stop. And so the first step to avoiding gospel, gospel downgrade is to be on guard. If you can think of a, a church sort of like a, a nation, there are inevitably several, several points of weaknesses along the border, different entry points through which the enemy may try to infiltrate the church. And then you need to know where those weak points are and how to identify the enemy when he tries to sneak across the border if you're going to avoid gospel downgrade. And this leads us into our second lesson on avoiding gospel downgrade. Lesson number two, don't just be on the lookout, but watch the leaders in particular. Let me say that one more time. Don't just be on the lookout, but watch the leaders. Watch the leaders in particular. That may be surprising to hear. After all, we would tend to think our leaders are the ones who are most equipped to avoid error. And this is part of what makes gospel downgrade both so deceptive and so incredibly successful. It infiltrates the church through trustworthy sources. If you look here, who does Paul tell the church to look out for? Again, he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And now you read that, and you may think that there, is, there isn't any great deception in this kind of opponent, right? Paul condemns the opposition so strongly that one would think that they would be relatively easy to identify as the enemy. But that's only because Paul is trying to make the fact of their opposition so incredibly clear that the Philippians will realize that they are actually the enemy. In other words, he's doing this for effect. He's speaking in strong terms here because he wants to expose the enemy for who they really are. He wants the Philippians to understand in no uncertain terms that they're not who they claim to be. They look one way, but they're actually something else, and they shouldn't be fooled. So then what's the form that these false teachers are taking? I think we see the answer in the way Paul contrasts his ministry with theirs in verse 3. He says, For we, we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. When Paul says, we are the circumcision, just so you know, he's not saying we are in the sense of we Christians generally. That's probably how most people are inclined to read this text. They think Paul is saying that Israel is not merely a physical institution which someone belongs to by birth. Basically, membership isn't determined by one's descent from Abraham. Rather, it's a spiritual entity which one joins by faith in Jesus Christ. Circumcision, of course, is the sign of one's membership in that community. And so when Paul says, we are the circumcision, people think what he's saying is, we Christians are the true Israel. We are the Israel of God, not these Judaizers. 
the problem with that line of thinking is that Paul is speaking to an essentially Gentile church, and Paul actually wasn't in the habit of referring to Gentile Christians as members of Israel. We've talked about this recently in our Sunday school class on the covenant. The New Testament teaches that Gentiles can participate in the New Covenant. And Paul absolutely refers to the Gentiles as participants in the promises of Israel in that sense, because the New Covenant was a promise made initially with Israel. But the covenant that defines the community of Israel, the Abrahamic covenant, the sign of which is circumcision, that's an entirely different covenant. And Paul was actually incredibly opposed to the idea that a Gentile had to participate in that covenant in order to receive salvation. That was actually the whole reason why he so strongly opposed the circumcision of Gentiles as a means of salvation. It was because Gentile salvation was promised to Abraham apart from their participation in the Abrahamic covenant. They didn't need to become Jews to be saved. They were saved as Gentiles through their faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul didn't require the physical circumcision of the Gentiles, even though he still encouraged it among the Jews. And he didn't refer to the Gentiles as the quote-unquote true circumcision. Now to be clear here, you do have a section in Colossians where he refers to a metaphorical circumcision that the Gentiles have received in Christ. Basically, Christians are set apart as a people designated for special service to God, much in the same way uh, that the Jews were set apart in circumcision. But Paul's very clear that he's speaking metaphorically in that instance. He's not saying they are literally Jews or anything like that. You also have a section in Romans 9 where he says that not all who descended to Israel belong to Israel. But even there, the context refers to those who have descended from Israel. And his point is that it's possible for individual members of Israel to be cut off from the promises made to Abraham. Point being, he's still referring to the Israelites as a distinct ethnic people there. In fact, in the very context of that same verse, Paul goes on to speak of the fact that the covenants still belong to unbelieving Israel. So again, he doesn't seem to make this distinction between spiritual and physical Israel, or at least not to the degree that the Gentiles who have faith somehow now belong to spiritual Israel. To him, there's just Israel. And the Jews who believe are participants in the promise, whereas those who don't have been cut off. The Gentiles are an entirely different matter. So again, I don't think Paul is saying we, as in both Paul and the Philippians, are the circumcision, the true circumcision, the spiritual circumcision, as opposed to these unbelieving Jews who are merely circumcised outwardly. Rather, what he's trying to do here is distinguish which Jews truly represent what is authentic Judaism. Let me say it one more time. He's trying to distinguish which section of Israel represents what is authentic Judaism. In other words, he's making a distinction among Israel in that Romans 9 sense that says that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You see, going back to this class on the covenants once again, the role that God had originally planned for Israel was for them to be this kingdom of priests. They were supposed to take the truth of God and this truth that he had entrusted to them and go and share it with the nations. You go to Matthew 5, for instance, where Jesus talks about how no one lights a lamp and sets it under a basket. And that was his point. 
God had established Israel as a light to the nations, but the people of Israel weren't acting that way. They weren't sharing the knowledge of God with the nations. Instead, they were holding it to themselves and condemning the nations. That was the exact opposite purpose of their calling. Since his conversion, though, Paul has been doing that. He's been going out amongst the nations and telling them about the salvation that God has established for all peoples in Jesus Christ. And the result is that now there are these Gentile converts. You have people like the Philippians who've come to believe that the God of Israel is the one true God and that he has chosen to reveal himself through the people of Israel. Are you, are you following me here? Like these Gentiles who believe, they believe what Paul has told them about the Christ. They also believe that Israel has been entrusted with the knowledge of God. God's commands, his covenants, his promises, this is all coming down through them. It's like what we saw in Sunday school this morning with the woman at the well. Jesus affirms salvation is from the Jews. These Gentiles in Philippi believe that truth. But now you have this other group of Jews coming in who don't agree with Paul on a whole lot. Actually, they're saying that what Paul has been spreading is false teaching. In fact, even more than that, they're saying it's anti-Jewish. Like it's outside the tenets of Judaism. This would have been a fairly unexpected development for these Philippians. Keep in mind, one more time, Philippi didn't have enough Jews to form a synagogue. So when Paul rolls in and says, I'm here to tell you on behalf of Israel that the Messiah has come and his name is Jesus, they don't necessarily realize that that's a point of contention amongst the Jews. They're prone to think that what Paul is telling them is more or less the official party line, but now you have this group of Jews who reject Paul's teaching so strongly that they're actually stirring up trouble for his converts. And at this point, this presents a fresh dilemma for the Philippians, which is, who's telling the truth? Who's, who actually has this right? What does the Bible actually say about this stuff? Again, I'd, I'd imagine you've all experienced this before at one point or another, haven't you? You have one teacher in the church who says one thing, and at first blush, it sounds really good. sounds pretty scriptural. And so you accept what they tell you. And then you have another one come along who also seems pretty respectable, and they say something different. And now you're going, wait a minute, so who's right here? Who should I trust? Or maybe it doesn't, didn't even happen within the church. Maybe you were like me. You were raised with the scriptures. And so you implicitly trusted the authority of God's word from the very beginning of your life. But then you went to college or something like that. And you started to encounter some really intelligent people who reject the word of God. Maybe it was a, a professor, maybe it was a classmate, but they were smart and you respected them. And they said that they've thought about it and they don't believe the Bible. That can cause a shock to your system. Suddenly you're going, well, wait a minute here. Who's right? What is actually true? <clears throat> this is more or less what the Philippians are either presently experiencing or what Paul anticipates 
they will soon experience. These Jews are saying Paul's teaching does not represent the faith handed down to us in the Old Testament. And now the Philippians are starting to wonder who to believe. Again, they're not questioning their faith in Jesus, still less the authority of the Jewish scriptures. Again, they believe that salvation is from the Jews, but what they're trying to figure out is if whether or not at least some of what these Jewish teachers are saying is true. Yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, they're saying. But I don't know. These guys also seem to have a point. Maybe we should obey the law of Moses. Maybe circumcision is something we should adopt. Maybe Paul got those parts wrong. Again, those kinds of considerations are going to be very tempting when it could mean an escape from suffering if they happen to be true. So what they're trying to figure out is who to believe. And what Paul is saying here is that we, we meaning Paul and his companions, Paul and the apostles, Paul and the rest of believing Israel, he's saying we are the circumcision. We are the true stewards of God's revelation. So don't listen to what these other people have to say about the necessity of the law. No, you need to listen to us. You'll note that this is the tone that continues all the way to the end of chapter 3. Verse 15, Paul talks about how those who are mature will think the same way he thinks. Verse 17, he urges the Philippians to imitate him and keep their eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in, quote, us. That us there, by the way, is significant because it informs who the we is up in verse 3, and it doesn't include the Philippians. Paul is referring to himself and his missionary team. The Philippians are to follow their example because they are the circumcision. Basically, this whole argument that Paul is about to make here in chapter 3, you know, the part where Paul talks about being a Hebrew of Hebrews and all that? That's not just about teaching the Philippians how faith in the Jewish God is actually expressed. It's also about Paul demonstrating to the Philippians that his authority is legitimate. It's not as if he's some nominal Jew who ended up believing in Jesus because he didn't know how to read his Bible. He wasn't misled by the apostles. No, he was actually one of Judaism's brightest young minds when he converted to Christianity. He has always been extremely zealous for the law, and he knows what he's talking about when it comes to the scriptures, but he's turned his back on that whole system anyways. And there's a reason for it. It's because he's come to realize that what he was doing before wasn't actually Jewish. What, he, what he's come to learn in Christ, this represents the true hope of Israel. And so those Jews who have attached themselves to Christ, they are the true circumcision. They represent the legitimate line of Israel. And so they are the true stewards of God's truth, not these unclean dogs, these workers of evil. The Philippians need to ignore those guys entirely. So that's what this passage is about. It's about spiritual authority. It's about who is the true steward of God's truth. All the way through chapter 3 here, it's about who is the true steward of God's truth. And in verse 3, Paul is going to give the Philippians three proofs that demonstrate his point. Three evidences to the fact that he and his companions are indeed the true circumcision, the true steward of, stewards of God's word. 
And of course, understanding these proofs are going to be incredibly helpful for us in avoiding gospel downgrade. But before we start to get into all of that, I think what we should recognize right now, just from what we've talked about here this morning, is that doctrinal decline is often introduced through an organization's leaders. It's the teachers, it's the spiritual authorities who tend to infect the body with this virus. Now, I want to be clear here. This is not Paul's point in this passage. His intent here is not to say doctrinal compromise is most often introduced through the body's leadership. His point, rather, is to help the Philippians distinguish between legitimate teachers and false ones. He's not really saying much about whether or not this is the most common way that error enters into the church. Still, I think this is a legitimate observation to make about this passage. The error is being introduced by Bible scholars. It's being introduced by individuals who are viewed as legitimate spiritual authorities. And though it may not be Paul's point here to say that this is how error enters into the church, this is actually the testimony of the rest of the New Testament. And so I think this is a legitimate implication from this passage. If you're going to avoid gospel downgrade, you must keep a close eye on the teachers because that's where it begins. It starts at the top of the hill, right? And then it gains momentum as it moves its way down. So how does this work? How does false teaching infiltrate the church from the top down? Well, I think if we're paying close attention to what seems to be happening in Philippi, we can discern at least two ways. First, downgrade can enter through unbelievers who take a form of legitimacy, but who subvert the faith with error. Again, Downgrade can enter through unbelievers who take a form of legitimacy, but who subvert the faith through error. This is what's happening with the Jews who are persecuting the Philippians for their faith. Their zeal for righteousness, if you stop and think about it, it's completely legit. People sometimes forget this point. If you came across a Pharisee, for instance, they'd probably make you feel ashamed at how apathetic you are for the things of God. I mean, guys like, again, Saul, right? (laughs) They were guys who built their entire life around adherence to the law because they were working for their justification. It showed up in the way they dressed, how they ate, how they spent their time, and the end result is that spiritually, they look like the real deal. They appear to be the genuine article. The problem, though, as Paul will point out in verse 3, is that although their actions seem legitimate, they actually deny the faith with their teaching. And by the way, that ultimately ends up disqualifying the legitimacy of their actions. Like when Paul starts talking about how he considered the kind of righteousness that he had before Christ as rubbish, or more literally, dung, later in this chapter. He says all of that was dung in comparison to the righteousness that comes from Christ. He's saying that because he's come to understand that that's what his righteousness actually was in God's eyes. 
All his efforts at righteousness were actually unrighteousness. Again, Paul points out these teachers are workers of evil, right? They aren't actually righteous, but the appeal is that they sure look righteous. They sure look like the authentic article. And Jesus warned about this, didn't he? As he closes out the Sermon on the Mount and as his listeners have a, a choice to make between the righteousness that he's proposing and the righteousness taught by the scribes and Pharisees, he warns them. Matthew 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. This sheep's clothing, by the way, that's a reference to the wool and garments that shepherds and even prophets were known to wear. The idea is that these false teachers came dressed like legitimate spiritual authorities. But that's not what they are on the inside. Paul warns about the same idea in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Speaking of false teachers, he says, starting in verse 12 and continuing through verse 15, he says, And what I do I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And he says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. You guys hear that there? He says that these false teachers will even disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. Meaning they'll assume a form of legitimate leadership, but then they'll use that position to undermine the truth with their error. As I've been preparing for this uh, section of Philippians, I've been working through a book called Biblical Separation by Ernest Pickering. And uh, just so you know, before you get ahead of me, please don't think that because I'm mentioning the book, I'm endorsing it. Uh, people can sometimes get that confused. They'll think that just because I share a quote by someone that I'm endorsing everything that they have to say. And unfortunately, as I think we'll see in our next point, uh, that's one of the ways that error can infiltrate the church. So please don't ever assume that just because I mentioned that someone once said something good, that everything they said is good because that's not how it works. Okay. Anyways, in this book, Pickering discusses how doctrinal compromise has occurred at different points in history. And at one point he starts talking about the Unitarians. Now, in case you don't know what a Unitarian is, Unitarianism, in its most, in its most basic form, is a heretical branch of Christianity that denies the Trinity. Essentially, they deny the deity of Christ, and they say that God does not exist as three persons in one God. He's simply one person in one God. Last week, I spoke of how the oldest continuous-use church building in the United States houses a Unitarian Universalist congregation. A Unitarian Universalist is someone who not only believes that there's only one God, but they also believe that his revelation of himself is not exclusive to Christian doctrine. They say that all religions are actually pointing to the same God, and so we shouldn't attempt to divide each other into Christians or Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists. Instead, we should all acknowledge that we're actually seeking the same God and worship him together. This is the logical conclusion, by the way, of their denial of the Trinity. Their stress on the oneness of God leads them to conclude that all religions are actually addressing the same God. 
Again, you see how hard it is to stop doctrinal decline once against rolling. The Unitarians didn't stop with the denial of the Trinity. They ended up even denying the exclusivity of Christian truth altogether. Anyways, if you remember, I said this church building, Old Ship Church in Hingham, Massachusetts, was originally built by the Puritans. Well, Pickering discusses that decline, how the Puritans descended into this kind of thinking, and he notes that in large part, it arose out of a mood of compromise. He says, basically, everyone loved to emphasize their points of agreement rather than their points of difference. And this allowed teachers sympathetic to these false doctrines to remain in positions of authority within the church. Essentially, no one would discuss what is false because that created contention, division. And this allowed those who were abandoning the faith to be viewed by the rest of the body as orthodox. And then by the time their departure from the faith became apparent, it was already too late. One Unitarian minister describes it like this. He says, the progressive tendencies went silently on, and step by step the old beliefs were discarded, but always by individuals and churches, and not by associations or general official action. In other words, no one woke up one morning and said, hey, let's change our doctrinal statements at the outset. They still affirmed the old doctrinal statements at the beginning while actually denying them in private or even in their pulpits. And then only after the error had spread to the degree that it actually had won a majority did they come back around and challenge the organizational structures. Writing in his original article on the downgrade, Robert Schindler writes this. He says, It is exceedingly painful to have to state and the conduct is no less censurable than pitiable, that among the two classes in which those who held Arian sentiments may be divided, and just so you know, Arians are those who say that Jesus is a created being. So Schindler says that that group could be broken down into two classes. The first, he says, were so mean and dishonest as to conceal their sentiments under ambiguous phrases. They so expressed themselves that their orthodox hearers might appropriate their statements in support of their own views, while their Aryan adherents could still turn to them to support their scheme. It is stated on very good authority that many who wore this disguise all their days and the most cautious carried the secret with them to the grave. Others were only a little less hardened in their career of falsehood. They prepared a sermon or other composition revealing their true sentiments, which was made public after their decease. Still more confided, confided their real sentiments to a small circle of adherents who told the tale of heresy to the world only when the grave had closed over the teacher. He then goes on to say that there was a second group, less numerous, who simply outright declared their heretical beliefs. So you see, these teachers took a form of orthodoxy, and then no one challenged them. No one watched for whether or not their teachers were orthodox until it was too late. As Pickering explains, he says, many churches became Unitarian instead of Trinitarian and crossed the boundary without even knowing it. In many churches, there was not even any debate over theological changes. It was natural, peaceful, it was a natural, peaceful evolution. This is one way that doctrinal slippage occurs within the church. It comes through unbelievers who take a form of legitimacy, and then use their authority to subvert the faith with error. The second 
way that this downgrade enters the church is through well-meaning but misguided believers who unwittingly provide false teachers with a platform for their teaching. Let me say that one more time. It, downgrade can enter through well-meaning but misguided believers who unwillingly, unwittingly provide false teachers with a platform for their teaching. This is why I said what I did a minute ago about not confusing my quotation of a particular author with an endorsement of their teaching. You may not notice this, but most of the time I don't even give the name of who I'm quoting anymore. And that's because I've quoted people in the past and people have come up to me afterwards and say, hey, don't you know that so-and-so teaches this? And my answer is, yeah, but I'm not endorsing that. I'm saying that they said this thing well. And I've been challenged on that. I think rightly that I can't do that. Because when I quote someone, people will think I'm passing this person off as credible and go off and start reading their stuff. And I'm not meaning to do that. So instead, I just say now in the words of one author or something like that for everyone, because my point isn't who said it, but what they said. And I want you to know that I'm not claiming credit for that statement. I'm getting the idea from someone else. Anyways, if you think about it, this would be what's happening in the Philippian church. The error is coming in through misguided believers are giving a platform for these false teachers. After all, it probably isn't the Jews who are telling them they need to adopt the law of Moses. If anything, the Jews in this scenario are probably their persecutors. They're the ones instigating the Roman authorities. So they're probably not trying to convert these Gentiles. They're trying to wipe them out. They want them destroyed. So the compromise is probably coming from inside the church. As individual members of the Philippian church consider the strength of their opponents' arguments. Like there are brothers or sisters who are hearing the accusations being thrown at them by their enemies. And they're saying, you know what? Maybe they have a point. Maybe there's something we need to change. And the error is coming in that way through some well-meaning but misguided believers. Again, you jump down to verses 15 and 16. Where Paul says, let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. And this seems to be the tone that Paul is taking here. He's talking as if there are members of the church who are wavering. And Paul's trying to convince them to come back on his side with this argument in chapter 3. So the air is probably coming from within the church, from genuine believers who have been misled and are giving these, these opponents a platform within the church for their teaching. I, I can't say this definitively, but I wonder in part if this is where the contention may be coming from in the Philippian church. You know, we've talked about this disunity that they've been experiencing, this grumbling that they've been having against one another. It may be that the church is actually getting frustrated with one another because some see circumcision as a legitimate option and they're getting frustrated with those who are fighting against it. Essentially, they think these Christians who are pushing back are basically choosing to suffer for their faith and in that sense, they're suffering, they think they're suffering for their obstinance. If so, then this might make sense of verse 15 once again. The reason Paul is talking about those who are mature thinking like him, right after this whole section about speaking on you know, how 
They're to seek Christ alone is because the division is coming from within the body as some brothers are trying to advocate for this compromise. Paul is then laying out the case against compromise and then he's telling them this is actually the more mature position to not compromise. He's taking the sides of those who aren't compromising without escalating the conflict into an us versus them thing. Either way, the point is that the error is probably coming from within the church, from well-meaning brothers and sisters. This is one of the trends that Schindler observed as well in his original downgrade articles. For example, in the second article, he speaks of Philip Doddridge, who at one time was the head of a dissenting school known at the time as Northampton Academy. Doddridge himself was a man of impeccable testimony. He was the author of over 400 hymns, and Schindler himself said he would not, quote, insinuate even the suspicion of heresy against him. And yet within a generation of his death, Northampton Academy, which by that time had become Daventry Academy, had embraced Socianism, which is another form of heresy that denies the deity of Christ. As Schindler tries to trace the source of this decline, he writes this, he says, Dr. Doddridge was as sound as he was amiable, but perhaps he was not always judicious, or probably still he was too judicious and not sufficiently bold and decided. As the pastor of an influential church and as the head of an academy which ranked higher than any other, his amiable disposition permitted him to do what men made of sterner stuff would not have done. He sometimes mingled in a fraternal manner, even exchanging pulpits, with men whose orthodoxy was called into question. It had its effect on many of the younger men and served to lessen in the estimate of the people generally the growing divergence of sentiment. In other words, Doddridge's problem wasn't his orthodoxy. He was a thoroughly orthodox man, a very faithful Christian. His problem was that, like the Puritans of New England, he was too friendly. He wanted to emphasize what people had in common, what he, what he shared in common with others, not what set him apart. And this led him to be over-eager in putting men who actually had errors in their teaching before his students. And because these men were being introduced by a man as reputable as, reputable, as a man like Dr. Doddridge, the students just assumed that they must be safe. And the result was that his students became infected because of the platform he provided these false teachers. This is another way that false teachers infiltrate the church. They don't just sneak in in disguise. They're actually ushered up onto the platform by the very individuals who should be protecting the church from them. And I have to say, as dangerous as the first form of infiltration is, this second one is much, much more dangerous. Again, because it comes through men whose testimony is credible, who do say the right things. At least with the first type of infiltration, you can ask the teacher point blank what they believe and they have to lie to sneak in. Not so with this second type of infiltration. There you're encountering men who believe the truth sincerely and it's evident by their lives. They're just letting it, the, the error in because they don't know any better. It's accidental. They'd never let the error in if they realized that's what they were doing. 
Again, that's what makes it such an effective means of infiltrating the church. No one would ever suspect a man like Philip Doddridge of being a source of error in the church because Philip Doddridge would never intentionally subvert the truth. That makes men like him an incredibly effective means of spreading error because people trust them. So I'll say it again. If you're going to avoid gospel downgrade, then you must not only be on the lookout for it, but you must be watching the teachers in particular, even the ones you trust. In fact, perhaps most especially the ones you trust. And that's not because you suspect that they're unfaithful, but because you know they're not. And that's what makes them such a powerful influence in the church. Listen, if they slip, again, not intentionally, right? If they slip by accident, if they go down, they're bringing a ton of people with them. So watch them closely. Again, not out of suspicion per se, not because you think that they'll willfully subvert the church, but out of concern and love because you realize that even the best of men are still fallen sinners. And they're going to experience a lapse in judgment from time to time. And you don't want them to commit one of these errors even unintentionally. By the way, let me just say, as one of your pastors and for the health of our body, please love this church enough to do this with Clint and I. I would trust that you all know that we would never intentionally lead this church into error. But neither are we so proud as to think that we're incapable of making an error in our judgment. Listen, I'll I'll let you know right now, if you come to me telling me I'm in error on something, I may very well push back. And understand, that's because I believe it is my responsibility to protect the body by being discerning. So I have to be honest. If you say to me, hey, I think you're making a mistake, there's a decent chance I'm going to end up interrogating you because I can't just roll over and accept whatever criticism comes my way. But that said, I'm not going to ignore your complaint either. And so I have to interact with it. And that means I probably will push back. Maybe you'll end up convincing me Maybe you won't. Maybe when it's all said and done, we'll both walk away thinking the other person's in error. But please, whatever you do, please, whatever you do, do love the church enough to have that conversation with us. We're not above reproof. Like I said just a few minutes ago, I've had people challenge me before, and I'll be the first to admit, I don't always like it, but I do often need it. And I think the church has been better off because they were willing to pull me aside and challenge me. So don't think that I'm just giving this sermon about other people. I understand what I'm saying. Watch out for gospel downgrade. Especially watch the teachers. I'm saying watch out for me. Or at least I would hope that's what I'm saying. I hope that you trust me at that level. And if so, just let me be clear right now and say, yes, you do need to watch out for me. Not because I would ever intentionally lead you into error, but because I can still do it accidentally. I know this. Clint and I both know this. So consider this an open invitation. Watch us closely. And love us enough to call us out when we start wandering from the truth. Or perhaps even unintentionally entertain those teachers who've wandered from the truth. Because we're not perfect. 
We need that level of accountability. Cornerstone, right? Cornerstone needs that level of accountability. We've seen that if we're going to avoid gospel downgrade, that we need to be on the lookout for various types of decline in the church. And we've seen that we need to be watching for this decline among our teachers in particular. Now the question is, what kinds of things are we to watch out for? That's not only a question that we'll address in our fellowship groups this week, but it's also one that Paul is going to address for us in the rest of verse 3 next week. That's what we're going to pick up next week. We're going to explore the proofs that Paul presents as evidence of his spiritual authority. And I think these proofs are going to provide a very good litmus test to apply when looking for some of the early warning signs of downgrade, either in a church generally or even in leaders specifically. I'd invite you to come back and explore these proofs with us next week. Let's pray.